one of the truly gorgeous things about the kingdom of God is that there are so many right expressions of faith and what it looks like to gather uh, as a people. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but if, if you would have opened your eyes today when your alarm clock went off and somehow you would have woken up in some other country and you'd have gone to church there, it probably would have looked a little bit different. There's a lots of right ways to express faith in Christ. Uh, and, and, and we see a myriad of ways of doing that as you think about cross-cultural worship and the fact that Jesus Christ isn't just Lord for one nation. Jesus Christ is Lord of all nations. And the expression of that is so beautiful. And even when you think uh, outside of cross-cultural thinking and thinking about different countries, and if you just think about your experiences uh, as a person who has sought to follow the Lord Jesus, uh, if you grew up going to a church, you can look around at what we do and you can go, this is a little bit different than the way it was growing up. There's lots of right ways to express faith and certainly the fellowship doesn't claim that we have the monopoly on the right way for us to have services or pray or study the Bible, but we do think we're on the right track. But there's lots of different ways that people express faith. Uh, for instance, you know, when my family's on vacation, we always like to go and try out different churches. And uh, one, one Sunday, I found myself in a church where there was this huge choir and they all had robes on. I felt a little uncomfortable. <laughs> and they, they didn't have drums or the bass guitar or anything like that. They had a piano and an organ. And uh, I, I don't feel like I would dress for the occasion but man, listening to that choir sing and that organ play that sacred music was just beautiful. It was so good for my soul. And uh, obviously that's way different than what we do here. Uh, although I've thought about wearing a robe, it would, it would eliminate my need to wake up and go, what am I going to wear today? It doesn't matter. I'm going to put a robe on, right? It doesn't matter. So I'm a little jealous in that regard. But the, some other expressions don't wear robes, but they're uh, more dressy, right? They're more formal. Some places this morning that are worshiping right now. If you were to walk into that building, you would see the pastor standing up there in like a three-piece suit and a pocket square and a necktie. And he would just look as sharp as he could possibly look. And everybody's wearing suits. And if you walked in and you weren't all dressed up, you might go, oh, wow, I don't know if I'm in the right spot. Or, or even beyond what you wear, just the culture, right? I was talking with somebody this morning. This morning was their first time here and he said, Pastor Zach, this place is way different than where I used to go to church. Where I used to go to church, you did not talk in the sanctuary. Like you walk in and you sit down and you be quiet until things start. But we would never talk uh, in the worship center. And I thought, well, that's so interesting, right? But again, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just different. And, uh, and, and if you go and have coffee at the end of the service, and we hope that you will, like that's sometimes different than other churches where we get done and we head straight for the automobiles. Like there's just lots of different ways. And I'm so intrigued by it. And I don't know that I ever really get the sense when I see another expression of faith where I go, you know, I'm going to have to go talk to the elders. We got to do it like this. So you can observe a lot of different ways to do it and respect a lot of different ways to do it and appreciate a lot of different ways to do it. But when it comes to the early church, I really do have the sense of, I would really love to know how they did it so that I can make sure 
that we're doing it similar to that. Uh, Because the early church, when we look in the book of Acts, we find an early church that really has this beautiful expression of what it looks like and what it means to organize our faith and to express our faith and to live out our faith. And so I don't think necessarily wearing robes are good or bad. I'm kind of indifferent, to be honest. I do think that there's a season where we as leaders and and participants in the fellowship, we need to go back and look at the earliest church and ask ourselves, not what they wore, but what were their values? And how did they organize themselves? And, and what did the rhythm of life look like in the earliest church? And so uh, if you've noticed in, in, on the screens or in your notes, we're beginning a series today called Together. And it's a series where we study the life of the early church. And as we jump into it today, we're going to do two main things. We're going to share the goals that we have for the series, but then we're also gonna try to play catch up a little bit. Uh, Even though this is the first uh, installment of the series, we're already a little bit behind because our study is gonna come primarily from the end of Acts chapter two. But so much has happened in the book of Acts by the time you get to the end of Acts chapter two that we kind of have to catch up and say, okay, as we approach the end of Acts chapter two, what all has happened already? And if you have your notes you see this morning that the outline is reflective of those two things so let's start with goals over the next many weeks over the next couple of months we're going to be walking through this series that has three main goals the first one as I've said is just to understand the early church I think it's, it's an amazing blessing that we can look into scripture and understand the value system, the behaviors, the life patterns of the earliest church. What you'll discover is that they were not a perfect church either, but they were a powerful church. They, they were not perfect, but they were powerful. Uh, another thing that you'll discover uh, as we study the earliest church is that their life was not easy. You know, it's always tempting for pastors to stand up here and say to you, if you'll just yield your life to Jesus and you'll become a follower of Christ, everything's going to be gravy from here on out. Everything's going to be simple and God's going to bless every aspect of your life and you'll never hit any roadblocks, problems, circumstances, or difficulties. But anybody who would stand here and tell you that is not being honest with you. Even in the early church, they faced difficulties but they transform the world even in the face of those difficulties. So I'm excited to study that. A second goal that we have for this study is to inspire you to be more connected with connect groups. Now, if you're new to the fellowship, you may not know much about connect groups, but what I wanna say to you is without question, overtly without even hinting at it my one of my hopes one of my prayers for this series is that it would put inside of you this thought I need to be connected to a small group somehow I know that Sunday mornings in this room are amazing to be in the presence of God with brothers and sisters singing out praying, thinking through scripture, encouraging one another. Like this is some of the highlights of my week. I love this time. 
And I know that it's meaningful for you as well to watch people give their life to Christ and, and to watch people say, I want you to pray for me and to watch young adults and young uh, uh, students step up and say, I want to be leaders and, and to watch people yield to Jesus. So many amazing things that happen in this room. But I want you to know that true life transformation happens in small groups. Smaller groups of people where you are known and where you know the people that you're sitting with and where you can pray together and laugh together and when you need to cry together that you can cry together and you talk about the scripture together and you grow in your faith together. And so one of the things that I hope that you will catch from this series called Together is that the church and the New Testament didn't just meet on Sunday mornings. They met throughout the week in small groups. And I hope that that will spur you on to thinking about how can I get connected to a small group. So at the fellowship, the language that we have for our small groups is connect groups. Because the design is to connect people to one another and to God. And so as we go on this series... I just want to point you to something. If you have your notes on the back where they give all the announcements, there's at the bottom it says join a connect group. As you hear God leading you, I encourage you to scan that and to check in on connect groups. There'll be a spot where you can say I'm interested in joining a connect group. Uh, Some of you have said in the past, I want my house to be used for the glory of God, but I don't know how to do that. We need more host homes for connect groups. So maybe you, when you scan that code, you say, I want to be a part, but I'm also interested in my house being used to house a connect group. Or maybe you feel like it's time for you to step out and start facilitating. There's a place where you can say, I'd like to explore what it might look like to be a facilitator of a connect group. But over the next several weeks, that code is going to be there. And as As you say to yourself, the early church really spent a lot of time together and it wasn't just on Sunday mornings and I really want to get plugged into connect groups. I want to refer you back weekly to that QR code because that will help you get connected, not just to the Sunday morning experience and worship time and what we do together, but it will help you get connected to a connect group where life truly will be transformative. And the third goal is just to help us grow our passion for the kingdom of God. I don't know that I've ever studied the end of Acts chapter two since I've been walking with Jesus since like the mid 90s, where I've ever read Acts two and not been inspired and not had my passion grow inside of me for the things of God. Just to watch the early church operating is such a blessing to me and I trust that it will be a blessing for you. But just like an email or just like a letter or a text message, you don't start reading in the middle. You always start at the beginning. If I were to email you or text you, chances are that you wouldn't jump to the middle of what I was saying. You would start at the top, right? You would, uh, if, if somebody would write you a letter, you wouldn't go to page two and start reading. You probably would start at page one. And so as we look at Acts at the end of chapter two to understand what did the early church look like and how did they prioritize their life and what did they believe, the problem, if I could call it a problem, 
is that there's a whole lot that's already happened. There's a lot that's happened in the life of Jesus. There's a lot that's happened in the life, uh, in the movement of the Spirit of God. There's a lot that's happened in the life of the disciples. And so today, I want us to catch up so that next week when we open to the end of Acts chapter 2, we know everything that's already happened, and we are opening and reading, understanding what's already taken place. So in Acts chapter 1, I want for us to just look at these first 11 verses, and then we're going to think about what has already happened in the life of Jesus. Acts chapter 1 begins with Luke writing to a person by the name of Theophilus. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appealing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now that next section is titled in my Bible, The Ascension. And it's the story of after Jesus had been crucified and was resurrected and he spent 40 days with his disciples, what happened to Jesus is that he ascended back into heaven. And, and, and you'll notice in verse 10, it says that while these disciples were gazing into heaven, as Jesus went into heaven, there were two men who stood by them with white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 11 verses. I know that I've said a lot. We, it's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant today. There's so much that we're going to be taking in. But after this week, we'll be back to studying it verse by verse as we go through the second part of Acts chapter 2. Here's what we discover with the scriptures that we've looked at so far. A lot has happened with Jesus. Jesus has already conquered death. By the time Acts chapter 1 rolls around, by the time Luke is writing Acts chapter 1, uh, he is reminiscing on the fact that Jesus has already risen from the dead and he's already shown himself to the disciples. And I want you to look at that with me, if you would, in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Meaning Jesus demonstrated that he had resurrected from the dead. Not only had Jesus conquered death, but he had also begun, already guided the disciples on what they were to do next. It says that he told them, stay in Jerusalem and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has already been guiding the disciples and Jesus has already ascended into heaven gloriously. And here's what I want to pause and say before we move on and look at what the Spirit has already done. There's something very important tucked away in these verses. And it is that Jesus wanted his disciples to be certain and sure and confident with a 100% guarantee that Jesus had actually resurrected from the dead. Isn't it interesting that the author said he had presented himself as alive and demonstrated through many proofs that he had conquered death. 
I just want to pause a second and talk about that because I know that in a room this size, there's lots of different types of people and we're all at different places spiritually. And I know for a fact, because just the near sheer number of people, that if, if, if one thing is true, it would be that there are people in this room this morning who are not convinced that Jesus historically and physically was resurrected from the dead. Now, you may not care about that. You may think to yourself, oh, well, pastor, it's cute if you believe that. It's sweet. It's nice. It's fine. But I don't think he actually raised from the dead. You have to understand that all of Christianity hinges on whether or not Jesus physically actually rose from the dead. And, and, if, and if you are struggling with that, if you are what I would call, would love, a skeptic of the resurrection, then I think it's important for you to take the journey to think through what evidences are there for the resurrection of Jesus? Now, maybe you're convinced of it, right? But maybe you interact with or love somebody who struggles with what we call the historicity, whether or not it was historical that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. There's other alternative views of why the tomb is empty. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are some people who say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He didn't conquer death. In fact, he wasn't actually dead on the cross. What happened is that he had lost so much blood and he was so beaten and he was so exhausted that he passed out. He fainted and the disciples thought that he was dead. So they took him off the cross and put him in the tomb. And while he was in the tomb, the cool air resuscitated him and he came back into consciousness and was able to move the rock and walk out of the tomb. And so he looked like he conquered death, but he really was never really dead. If you're making notes, that's called the swoon theory. He didn't die. He swooned. That, that's one alternative theory. There's a theory that says that uh, he did die, but he didn't rise from the dead. The tomb is empty because while no one was looking, the disciples took his body. And then they went and told the story that he had resurrected from the dead. And, and they know that it's false, but they spread it nonetheless because they wanted to start a new religion. Now, you, you may listen to this and go, that can't possibly be true. Well, maybe not, but there are people who believe it there, there may be even people here who believe that Jesus stole the, that the disciples stole the body uh, of Jesus. There's another theory that says the disciples did not steal the body of Jesus. However, they got the tombs mixed up. And so they buried Jesus on Friday. And when they went on Sunday, they got mixed up and they accidentally went to the wrong tomb that was empty and they were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead because they went to the wrong place to look for him. So the point that I'm making to you is that in real life, there are alternative views to why the tomb is empty. And I think it's important for you as a follower of Jesus to understand these theories and understand reasonable responses to them. And if you're here and you embrace one of those theories, I just want to challenge you to really look it through. And if, 
if you would like more information on this, I love resourcing people. If you're new, you'll discover that I love, love, love resourcing people and helping people to really grow in their faith. If you want to understand these theories and why I and many, 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 many legitimate historical scholars don't believe that those are alternatives that can really be uh, believed, then at the bottom, there's a place where you can get in touch and you can just say, send me the resurrection uh, resource and I'll just connect you to it. And there's, uh, there's one like really fast, easy, super quick read article. Uh, and then there's one where this guy's a PhD and his PhD is in the empty tomb and all of the different theories. And there's plenty of detail there, more than you'll probably ever want. But whatever area of engagement you want, from easy reading to really detailed discussion of this, I would love to resource you. But the point is this. Uh, already, when we, when we get together next week and we start studying the early church, already Jesus has bodily, physically, historically been raised from the dead. Now, what has the spirit been up to by the time that we get to the second part of Acts chapter two? Three things. Jesus has already uh, poured out the spirit on the day of Pentecost over the church. And if you're new to church, and when I say the day of Pentecost, that doesn't ring a bell for you. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, in fact, if you just begin in, in the first verse of Acts chapter 2, you will see what I mean by the day of Pentecost. The Bible says that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is verse 1 in, in chapter 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were people there in Jerusalem, and it, the verses go on to say they were hearing this, and they were intrigued by this, and they were interested by this. And, and, and so this is the day of Pentecost. It's when the Spirit was poured out on the church. But not only had the Spirit been poured out on the church, the Spirit was empowering the church to do great and mighty works uh, in the kingdom of God. Because if you continue reading in Acts chapter 2, more things happen than just those disciples speaking in tongues. Uh, and, and so we have the Spirit poured out on the church, empowering the church, and the Spirit has already begun working through the church. Now again, all we're trying to do this morning is to get our brain around what has happened when we pick up studying the character, the values, the behaviors of the early church? We're just trying to catch up. And Jesus has conquered death. He's guided the disciples. He's ascended into heaven. The spirit has been poured out on the church. The spirit has empowered the church. The spirit is working through the church. In fact, uh, turn with me, if you would, uh, in the middle of Acts chapter 2. And I want you to look at verse 37. I want you to see this evidence, this hint that the Spirit is working through the church already. So here's what's happened. The people started talking and they're like, what's going on with these people? Why are they speaking in different languages? And why are we understanding what they're saying? And Peter, Scripture says, Peter filled with the Spirit. He stood up. And he preached his first sermon. Now, if you've never preached a sermon, I just want you to try to imagine, what would it be like if I walked out in public and just preached a sermon? Well, that's what happened that day. Peter didn't have his sermon notes. 
He had not prepared for this, like the Spirit had just filled him, and he began preaching his first sermon. And verse 37 talks about what happened when he finished. Now, when they heard this first sermon, they were cut to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Now, here's how I know for a fact that the Spirit of God was at work through the early church, because this was their response to Peter's first sermon. And I can tell you this, first sermons out of people, they're never that good. <laughs> I re- Who in here has preached a sermon before? A couple, yeah, like a dozen of us have done a sermon before. You remember your first one? I remember, my, I, I was, I'm so old that we, that we taped it on a cassette tape. All right, this was before even CDs, right? It was so awful, you guys. I was nervous and stuttering and stammering. I could not stay focused. I was just all over the place. And every now and then I'll listen to that cassette tape. It's hard now because I don't have a cassette tape player. And it was awful. (laughs) And I'm so jealous of Peter. I know I'm not supposed to be jealous. Forgive me, Lord. But look at verse 37. His first sermon cut people to the heart. And people were like, brothers, what must we do? What an amazing response. So the Spirit of God was working through the church. And I think that's important for us to understand. Because sometimes we think, I've got to follow Jesus for 10 years before I can do something for God. No, day one. And the Spirit of God was expanding the kingdom through willing vessels. So encouraging. What do, we, what do we know about the disciples? So we've looked at Jesus. We've understood what's already happened with Jesus. We've understood what's already happened with the Spirit. And now, what about the disciples? The disciples, three things, had already begun discussing matters of leadership. I, I only say that because it happened in Acts chapter 1. If you did not grow up in church, you may still know that there's a character in the Gospels named Judas. Judas is the guy who sold Jesus out. He went to the leaders and said, hey, if you want to arrest Jesus, I can take him to where you, I can take you to where he is. And they took him to Jesus. And and Judas is known as the great betrayer, the one who sold Jesus out. And, And not only had Judas ceased being a disciple by Acts chapter one, but he had ceased living. He was dead at this point. And so what's happened is that the disciples got together and they began thinking and talking about how do we replace Judas? And what type of person do we want to replace Judas with? And how do we replace him? What, who is the type of person? And what's the process? And so the important thing for us to understand is when we study the life of the early church, they've already begun thinking about matters of leadership. They've also already begun impacting the community. Now, I don't have to say much on this because we just looked at it in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, where Peter was in the community. What's so interesting about this is that Peter's first sermon wasn't in a church building. And Peter's first sermon wasn't at the synagogue or in the temple courts. Peter's first sermon was out in public. Because the people had seen that the Spirit of God was at work and a crowd gathered. And Peter didn't say, hey, you guys come down to the church. He just went where they were and he started preaching. They were already making an impact in the kingdom. 
And he preached a sermon and they were cut to their hearts and they said, what must we do? And if you continue to read, when, the, when these people who are listening to the sermon say, brothers, what must we do? Peter said to them, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I realize that the word repent oftentimes challenges, confronts, and offends people. And I want you to know that's not my desire to offend you today. But it is important for us to note as we begin to study the earliest church that from the very first sermon, people were called to repent. And that's important for us to realize. It goes all the way back to the very birth of the church of God. And so the the disciples have already begun thinking about leadership and the disciples have already begun making an impact in the community and the disciples have already begun living boldly in a new kingdom. Here's the thing that we discover as we study the early church. They lived out their faith in front of other people. And that's going to be an important thing for us to digest and process because oftentimes in the culture in which we live, we feel very comfortable coming into this safe space and living out our faith, talking about Jesus, singing to Jesus, raising our hands to Jesus, right? All of these incredibly important things, but maybe where we struggle is living out our faith and being bold in the kingdom of God in front of others. And it may be others on your block, or it may be others in your classes, or maybe others at your job, wherever it may be. What we're going to discover is that the early church already had begun living boldly in a new kingdom. So the goal today was to share the goals, which is for us to understand the early church for us to be divinely prodded forth to check out community groups that we call connect groups and to really just be passionate about the things of God. And so now next week as we study like our verse by verse walk through the early church, we know what Jesus had done up to this point. We know what the spirit had been up to up to this point. We know what the disciples had been up to this point. But I don't want to just leave you with a, here's what's been happening, have a great week. I I want for us to think for just a moment about how we might even take a message like this, where it really feels like fast forward all the way through it, (laughs) where you're just reading verse after verse after verse. But how do we pause and say, given everything that's happened, how can I take this and apply it to my own life and leave here ready to serve the Lord diligently, powerfully, faithfully in this coming week. I want to give you three thoughts and then we're going to close. The first thought is an encouragement to live with the confidence this week that the tomb is empty. I don't know what struggle you're going to have this week, but I'm quite certain you'll have one. It may be relational. It may be at your job. It may be financial. It it, it could be all of them together. I don't know what it will be that you will face this week. And I wish that you didn't have to face a struggle. But history tells us that soon we'll face something that we'll need to work through in a very deliberate and, and meaningful way. And here's what I hope. That when you face it, 
You face it with the confidence that the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has conquered death and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I encourage you with that. I encourage you to live under the authority and the direction of the Spirit of God. Do you know what we taught ourselves today? We taught ourselves that the Spirit of God is active in the life of believers. And, and I'm like you. I'm tempted every day to wake up and say, I'm going to do it my way today. I'm going to do it my way this week. I know that we struggle with the tendency to do that. But I want to encourage you this week, not just to live with the confidence that the tomb is empty, but to live under the authority and under the guidance of the Spirit of God. I want to encourage you to do that this week, wherever it is that you're going to be, whether you're at your job or whether you're at your house or whether you're at your school with your classmates, I encourage you to live under the authority and the guidance of the Spirit of God. I want us to close with prayer this morning. Would you bow with me as we finish with our prayer? I'm going to pray first for the believers that are in the room that you will certainly live with that confidence that the tomb is empty. But I also want to pray for you if you're in this room this morning and you know that the tomb is empty, but you've never really responded to that reality. And I'm just thinking about the the fact that oftentimes we might be religious or we might be spiritual. We might say to ourselves, I believe the tomb, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. If, If you do, that demands a response. And so here at the fellowship, we talk about it in terms of crossing the threshold from believing the gospel to becoming a follower of Jesus. You may intellectually believe all of the facts that are laid out in the scriptures. But I hope that you've responded to the facts. And that because the tomb is empty, you have yielded and surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus. If you haven't done that today, I invite you to do that. Most eternally significant decision you'll ever make is to give your trust and your allegiance to the one who conquered death. Lord, I began by praying for my brothers and sisters in this room that even this fast, quick overview of what you'd been doing in the life of the disciples as we get to the end of Acts 2 would spur us on in faith. Whatever we face this week, good or bad, tough or easy, important or indifferent, we would face it the way that we should as a dedicated, sold-out follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I pray for my friends who might be in this room this morning or even online worshiping with us live or in a playback that's thinking through in their head right now. I know that the facts are there, but I've never responded to that. I pray that they would, that they would just come before you in prayer and, and yield and surrender and begin to follow. We are excited to learn about the togetherness, Lord, of the early church, to discover their values and what they did and why they did it. We're excited over the next couple of weeks. Thank you for a great morning. You've been good to us. You've been so good to us this morning. We thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.